0: to Tech Refactored, a podcast in which we explore the ever-changing relationship between technology, society, and the law. I'm your host, Gus Horwitz, the Menard Director of the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center. Today's episode of Tech Refactored is one of two special episodes that we have been producing along with some of our student fellows here at the Governance and Technology Center. The topic that we're discussing today was researched by the students themselves. They prepared the questions, they invited the guests for our discussion, and they will be conducting much of the interview themselves. I am pleased to introduce Salome Prez and Amy Berry as our guest hosts for today's episode of Tech Refactored.
1: I'm a PhD student in computer science. I work at the intersection of software engineering and artificial learning, where I use advanced repository mining and heuristics that cluster intents of units of software and machine deep learning techniques to study the syntax and semantics of source code
2: patterns. I am Amy Berry. I'm a doctoral candidate in the Educational Administration Department here at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln in the College of Education and Human Sciences. My research interests include qualitative research methodologies, leadership identity construction, and identity work, especially in the context of gender in higher education settings.
0: Their discussion today is going to focus on the role of software in agriculture. And in particular, we're going to look at the cybersecurity challenges that are created by the increasing role that software plays in agriculture.
1: So we start with addressing the big elephant in the room, which is software. So how software plays a role in agriculture and it's going to follow a traditional software development pipeline. And then we mixed a little bit with cyber threats.
2: From my perspective, working in information technology services, security is just really baked into all of our job descriptions. Something that I hear time and time again is that it's it's up to all of us to kind of bring a security mindset to what we do. I was looking forward today to learning about the security by design kind of principles that we were going to talk about, some of the cybersecurity insurance pieces, which I've also kind of heard about in my work environment, and then just kind of overall incentivization of planning for secure systems. I think that these are all really crucial topics and they tie into some of my larger interests of technology governance.
0: To discuss these issues, Amy and Salome are joined by two experts in this area of research, Santosh Pitla and George Crispos.
3: My name is Santosh Petla, and I'm an associate professor in the Department of Biological Systems Engineering at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. I'm George Crispos. I'm in the School
4: of Interdisciplinary Informatics, and I'm an assistant professor of cybersecurity. George and
0: Santosh started collaborating on agricultural cybersecurity research in 2020.
3: You know, I met George maybe in 2020 online, right, George? Online. We applied for the System Science Collaborative Initiative that is across the NU system. So the project we submitted was security and hackability considerations of autonomous tractors. You know, so what happens if GPS on a tractor is spooked or and what are the attack surfaces? And assuming a tractor is attacked, so how do we respond? You know, just because of there are so much autonomy now in today's tractors, and no one was looking at security, which was critical. So that's how it.
2: Hi everyone, so we are a student fellow group from the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center housed in the University of Nebraska-Lincoln College of Law. I am Amy Berry, and today my colleague Salome Perez and I are looking forward to discussing the future of security challenges in the agricultural field with two expert guests and Gus Hurwitz, the director of the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center. In this episode of Tech Refactored, we are going to discuss how security practices intersect with agricultural applications. And Salome, you can kick us off from there. Thank you, Amy. So we would like to start with a warm up, quick game. So
1: where we will have five words uh, that we will be saying to you, and we would like to know a free association that you could tell us for that words. It's just one word that we would like to know. uh, What do you think uh, about the following? So may I start, please, with Dr. Santosh? Yes. Okay, so uh, risk. Not good. (laughs) (laughs) Like anything that comes first to your mind.
3: Yeah, when I hear risk, I I I think that, okay, how do you manage it?
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, trust.
3: Need to be earned.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, farm management.
3: Very complex.
1: Uh, big data.
3: Lot of, uh, lot of tools.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, robots. Awesome. <laughs> okay. Thank you. And I would like to continue with Dr. George. So, MITRE.
4: MITRE as in the company MITRE you're talking about?
1: Yeah, the standards for, the ones that build the standards for cybersecurity.
4: Um, not enough. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay. Cisco Talos.
4: Mm, complex.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, insurance.
4: Always needed.
1: Um, forensics.
4: Underestimated.
1: Mm-hmm. Um proprietary software.
4: A lot more needed.
1: All right. With that, we wanted to do a quick warm-up for today's conversation and we will continue with our questions and Amy will take it
2: away from here. All right. Well, thank you so much. So for our first question today, how do you envision the future of agriculture and the role of software in farm management?
3: Um, I think the future of agriculture is going to be data-driven, smart, and then autonomous. And software has a huge role to play with the future of agriculture
4: so just to add yeah and if anytime you introduce hardware that you want to do any of those things you're going to need software to run it hardware on its own is to use a horrible word dumb without the software actually making it do cool things it's it's nothing so you know how do you get the autonomy? how do you how do you handle those big pieces of data you need software so we're going to see more and more software in various forms, um, hitting farms and agricultural settings.
3: Just like a car, right? So today we cannot imagine a car without a user interface or a software. So they're not any more uh, mechanical devices. They're mechatronic devices, <laughs> and then they have software at its core. So
4: The, an- the analogy I like is, is the car key. The car key that we had about 20, 30 years ago had no functionality. It was just a simple little metal object that you plugged in and turned in the ignition and started. Today, the key is you know, remote starts, closed doors, windows, open the, the trunk. So think of that. That's all software as well. So The hardware on its own is nothing. The software is what's kind of driving everything on that front.
2: Okay, great. Thank you. For the next question, what are some of the benefits and drawbacks of precision agricultural applications? And what are some key decision factors you recommend considering when deciding on adopting a digital app or piece of software to coexist with farm operations?
3: Yeah, I think there's a lot going on in that question. Uh, so, you know, uh, precision ag apps are great if they're designed well, <laughs> right? So, the user interface is key. Farmers are busy people, so you need to spend a lot of time on the user interface, how usable it is. And then um, also, it's so important that how does this software take in the data and how can we get data out of it so that we can make something useful out of it, out of that data? So, so that's very important. The, uh, if you want to call it like the APIs or application program interfaces, right, is very important for precision ag apps. How does this app connect with, uh, let's say, come software from other companies or data sets from other companies? So that is very important. If they are not designed well, they are not going to be useful, you know. So, uh, so those are some of the drawbacks. So a lot of thought needs to be put into the graphical user interface, and then how uh, data can be inputted into the app, and then how useful information can be extracted. And the other big thing is, uh, when we're talking about farming, a lot of times we don't have a 5G on the field, right? So what happens if connectivity is not perfect, or? there's no good connectivity how does the app respond to that how does the app uh, what are the contingency strategy to save the data you know uh, so that's 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 very important
2: can i ask as a follow up what are some examples of data that farmers might want to get or retrieve out of an app
3: yeah so one very important one is uh, yield data right so when you're harvesting crop the farmer is very interested in knowing how many bushels per acre or how many pounds per acre of uh, grain I'm getting in my field. And then using that data, you could generate something called yield maps. So basically you can visualize this data in a map that has yield with color coding. You know, So red means low yield and green means you know high yield and yellow means you know somewhere in between so this is very useful information that actually farmers as they are harvesting the crop they're going to analyze because this is going to help them with next year decisions they are going to identify that okay this part of the field did not yield me very well so you know how can i improve my management practices for the next year so yeah that's a good example
4: so from my view i would be interested in looking at the benefits and drawbacks from a security perspective Um, Touching on some of the things Santosh mentioned is not just what data, um, but effectively, do they know where that data is going? Is that data at rest secure? So in other words, the device or the system that is running uh, the digital app or the piece of software, is that secure? Is the software itself secure? Is it going to the cloud? Who has access to the cloud? As you know, farming and agriculture is a critical infrastructure in this country, and if we start using providers and services, let's say, in countries which are not so friendly towards us, who has access to that data? You know, it could, could it be as easy as a one foreign government turning around to the provider and saying, we want all the farmers' data in Nebraska to figure out how much of a yield they're getting this year? Um, so, it's important, you know, when you choose an app or a piece of software, really dig into it from a security perspective and know where is your data going, not just, on, you know, from your mobile phone, for example, or a tablet. It's going into the cloud and, and where's it going from there? Who has access to it? So kind of having a, an, a good idea who could actually have access to information. Then not only that, what if one day you decide you want to move from one service provider to another? So like Santosh mentioned, last season's yield map will tell you which plot of, you know, acreage of land didn't do well or did well. Um, what if next year you decide, hey, cheaper options just come onto the market I want to be able to move my data, but you're now locked into one vendor. Um, so that's what we call vendor lock-in in terms of security. And that's terrible because if you've, you've lost all your data going forward, it's that's that's equivalent of someone just wiping out your hard drive. So that's things to consider as well. You know, Can I take my data? How interoperable is it in terms of me being able to use it for various applications, various services, similar to vendor lock-in? In that, you know, if it's locked to one person, I can't transfer it from one application to another. I can't filter it effectively. It might be quite useless to me. Um, And then the other thing to think about is what's that person maybe doing with your data on the other end? Are they potentially maybe selling it on? That's something else to consider. Because that's your proprietary information. That's something your family has generated over generations, the secrets to behind their success of a crop. So you're going to want to protect that quite a bit and and not just, you know, happily send it up into the cloud without realizing who or what could we actually be accessing or modifying it.
2: Okay. What are some of the major challenges that arise when integrating software into traditional agricultural practices and how can these be addressed from a secure design perspective?
3: Whenever we talk about software, there needs to be good amount of training that needs to go with it, especially if we are talking about agricultural practices, right? So, not all farmers are favorable to software apps, right? You know, so a bit of training is needed so that we can easily integrate software into day-to-day practices. And coming to the secure design perspective, um, I know George can talk a lot about this, but. One of the things is, you know, the data hygiene, you know, so, you know, when it comes to security, the important point is I don't want to give anyone unauthorized access. So that, that's very important, right? So sometimes the producer or the farmer themselves could send these data sets to a vendor in an unsecured way, right? So again, a, a lot of training is needed. On these typical insecure practices or unsecure practices, if you want to call it that way.
4: So some of the, the past, when we still have the great example is cloud computing. Rewind fifteen odd years ago, more maybe, everyone rushed to push out this thing called the cloud, and obviously it came out and like a lot of technologies, security was never at the forefront. Innovation takes over. Um, think about some of the smart devices you kind of have your in your home. The trend continues, and kind of us sitting back, uh, the two of us, and looking at what's available or coming into the market. Bar maybe one or two large equipment manufacturers. A lot of the products are not being designed with security in mind, and that, like I said, is not uncommon. So the idea, obviously, with security by design, is you always you're thinking of security when you design and develop a product, but you got to do it from the start, as opposed to bolting it on, which is the opposite. Um, and the idea is a lot of people will wait for something to emerge, then think of a security solution and try and patch it up. But you haven't actually then got to the root cause of a lot of the security problems because you haven't integrated your requirements. You haven't looked at you know your testing for security. You've just addressed the current problem. So the idea and hopefully the reality of what will eventually come in the coming years is that we will have secure by design software systems we're seeing a bit of the manufacturers hopefully think about and go yes this is the route we need to go from the start and then it kind of does lead on to maybe the next point you'll talk about and i'll kind of jump the gun but effectively it's not just having secure by design and saying i'm secure by design but allowing people like us to to actually take apart their security and say hey is this really secure if you have a closed off environment um, we can't evaluate your security. Proprietary formats, you know, unless we, I oh, no, don't want to use the word illegally reverse engineer, but you can find ways to, to dig into stuff and and figure out, are they really secure? But giving me that information and allowing me and the community to, to dig into it and say, hey, are we really secure? Every company doesn't have infinite resources. So claiming to be secure is one thing. Actually being secure is another thing. And the other thing we know is not everything is 100% secure. So there will always be some residual risk left over um, that can be exploited as new components and technologies get integrated into you know, software and equipment, more holes will appear from a security perspective.
3: Yeah, I think one example I can give is I work in the area of autonomous vehicles and agricultural robots. Um, so there's a lot of talk about AI, how do you make machine intelligent, right? So if if the, let's say a tractor is driverless, it has to be smart in terms of handling obstacles, but also complete the task it is given to complete, right? But if you're not thinking about security from the get-go, we're yeah. going to add a lot of vulnerabilities on the in the software systems of the machine. So no matter how smart the, the robot is from the perspective of AI or handling obstacles or taking care of crops, If there are security vulnerabilities, and if we did not think about security right from the get-go, we'll have major weaknesses in the overall performance of the machines.
1: Even in traditional software, it's really hard to know what's secure. So we don't have a one-on-one mapping to know, okay, we're using at the developer level these instructions that map without any uh, buffer overflow to memory. When it comes to constrained devices as IoT devices that have constrained memory and constrained um, the, the way the compiler will map to the registers is more limited. I think that is really an open question. What's the cure? And some of these topics, for example, uh, designed by memory, perhaps need a definition of how we are going to connect testing as scenarios where we can see, uh, we can gather, right, a, information about existing vulnerabilities or insights that we already know that doesn't work and how to connect that as a feedback to the design. Because otherwise, yeah, even for developers or for people that build the compilers, it's really hard to have one-on-one mapping about what's going on in that translation. So we wanted to know more about how we can best integrate Mm -hmm. that into what's primary in software uh, for agricultural applications. Like if they, for example, one uh, key takeaway I get from our discussion already is that API So API might use some specific data structures more than, uh, for example, encryption authentication or other types of algorithms. So in those, what are already some testing failures we know from bigger systems that we might want to think about to have more insight for the safety by memory designs.
4: So I'll take this one. I'm guessing Santosh is looking at this monitor and saying, George, this is your question. <laughs> um, so, that's a, so you've raised some very good you know, cybersecurity challenges. And I think let's just try and break this down a little bit. I think what's interesting, first of all, is agricultural cybersecurity is not even close to what you're discussing, Salome, in terms of compiler interpretation between high-level and low-level and how we can obscure effectively or defeats, make sure reverse engineering is not possible. Um, to give you an indication, and this is something that happened in agriculture is what I think it was 2005 or 2006, the FDA and um, USDA turned around and said, cybersecurity is not a concern for the agricultural community. It took them nearly 10 years to realize we've made a huge mistake. Now, in that 10-year period between 2005 and 2015, I want you to think of the technological things that happened. Okay. A lot has happened. iPhones came, two-factor authentication, clouds, so much happened. Other industries have had an opportunity to secure those systems and start thinking of the problems that you are are, are thinking about and addressing about in, in your question. So think about the critical industries, nuclear, command and control, chemical. All those industries are critical infrastructures. They are having to think about what you're describing right now. And what's scary is we don't know what is the state of the systems we're discussing today here because so little research has been done. You know, we were talking about what happens if malware gets into a system, just a normal piece of malware that's going to just do something silly, okay? Nothing too complex. You know, they've, we don't even know if the systems which have USB and Bluetooth have bidirectional communication ports. Will someone be able to just plug in a USB into a tractor and make it do weird things? What's going to happen to someone who hijacks an over-the-air update for a piece of internet-connected equipment? So your question is, I would say, a bit too advanced the agriculture. We don't have an answer right now, but it's a really interesting cybersecurity aspect. Because you're right, that is the cybersecurity questions we're looking to address today, is is, is, is from a high-level to low-level compilation the different risks and some of the things you can do with low-level virtual machines as well. But we just don't know in agriculture because we just haven't had a chance to, let's say, take machines apart from this perspective and kind of go with that angle of, you know, are these vulnerabilities there that exist in other systems?
3: Yeah, I think, you know, uh, where we are today in precision ag and Autonomous agriculture is we are trying to connect everything still <laughs> you know so we're talking about IOT we're talking about the functionality. we are in the phase where we want to c- connect everything so that we can uh, have access to the data so that we can send data to the cloud so that we can get some services you know cloud services used. So that is the state we are in so we are not not thinking about security yet. <laughs> You know, um, to me again, you know, from a general, very general perspective, security <laughs> is is about okay. Is my data getting accessed by an unauthorized party? Then that's a security problem, right? Is my uh, autonomous tractor taken over by uh, someone in an unauthorized way? Then that's a security problem. So those are some of the concerns right now. Is the unauthorized access of data or the equipment. And just, just to, to
4: add, sorry, one thing to maybe, they'll help you answer your question is, we are taking multiple technologies in the farm ecosystem and mushing them together. We're taking the cloud, we're taking IoT, we're taking big data. Any vulnerabilities that exist in those underlying technologies are going to be multiplied by three, four, five as we try and push out a precision ag application. I'll put that in air quotes, okay? Okay. So that's one way to think about it in, in terms of we're amplifying the security problems by adding more and more technologies without even realizing it. Because obviously Precision Ag is, 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 um, kind of builds on various technologies, and that's going to inherently bring in more vulnerabilities unintentionally. Yep.
2: Yep, for sure. And then that breaking point with security could be in any of those different areas. So that that definitely makes sense. So. Thank you so much for those great answers. For our next question, we're wanting to talk about licensed and open software. And of course, there are benefits and drawbacks to both of those software types. Could you talk a little bit about the trade-offs between licensed and open software or secure software requirements that are critical to future ag applications, both in terms of maintainability and affordability?
3: Yeah, I think um, a lot of trade-offs, right? So in licensed software, the farmer does not have, have to worry about a uh, buggy app, right? Like, you know, the li- licensed software provides, ensures uh, that the app is always going to work and it's going to be reliable and the producers don't have to worry about its operation, you know. So uh, when we compare that with open source, you almost uh, need to, you know, understand how the software works and then you need to be, you need to get ready to fix things by yourself. So I think the agricultural or producer community is uh, quite different from uh, typical software users, right? So so what uh, producers are looking for is uh, a reliable application or software that they don't have to worry about. <laughs> so I think, uh, so yeah, those are some trade-offs. And again, time is very, very critical. Time windows are very short. Uh, like for planting, maybe the farmer have like a 10 days to finish planting. You know, in that time, they don't want to be spending time on the software. They, they are interested in getting work done in the field. Uh, so they get this, the licensed software provides that reliability that, they don't get in open source uh, in my view so
4: i think this is just a classic example you've got a precision agriculture robotics stakeholder and a cybersecurity stakeholder and we would have different requirements for license versus open source right now I, you know i would santosh has just brought up very valid concerns and requirements from his perspective from my perspective i would argue open source is better because from my view, as I mentioned earlier, is that I can look at the code. I've got the code now, and I can confirm that it's actually reliable. Whereas, you know, you're hearing Santosh saying, I prefer licensed because I know it's bug-free. You know, that, that's, that's an interesting aspect. And that's something, again, we don't know are the manufacturers taking into account. Have they identified all the stakeholders from a requirements perspective? And we're just talking simple software engineering principles here. So, you know, in terms of maintainability, that does open up angles for both in terms of who is going to maintain open source software. It's always been the argument, you know, who are the true maintainers. But then also from the perspective of um, affordability, if we cut out, you know, licenses and, and, and bring in more people for a more open data platform, more open software platform, it could become more affordable. And don't forget, you know, one of the reasons why precision agriculture kind of exists is, you know, we're trying to increase crop production with a less, you know, dwindling number of farms available. Um, We don't want to cut out, you know, areas of the world where they possibly can't afford the technologies, but, you know, they want to be able to implement these practices and an open source solution for a lot of these technologies could help farmers sustain themselves and think about it it'll help reduce costs for farmers let's say, in developed countries where they're not having to help folks in developing countries does that kind of make sense so it's a rich poor kind of algorithm we, we want to help people get them on their feet without effectively having them to fork out a lot of money to, to pay for it
3: yep yeah, You know, I'm a proponent of open source. <laughs> uh, you know, I love open source because I use that in my classes, uh, many softwares. I think it's just the risk tolerance level, right? You know, for farmers, they're looking for something very reliable. If there is an open source <laughs> consortium that would like to work on open source ag apps and they can provide that, okay, these are secure and reliable Farmers would take it, why not, <laughs> you know? But it's just, we are not there yet in, uh, in in my, but I strongly believe in open source though, so.
1: So, building on that, so you already described the big gap between how cybersecurity is advancing for other areas and what's the state of, for agricultural, either el- electronics or the services that will be exposed by software. But I wonder your thoughts on how would you see interplaying this? Because right now, uh, the topic of IoT being plugged into agricultural settings has a lot of attention. So we will perhaps see soon some insurance policy that will try to prevent you from attacks. But I'm trying to make a point where the word attack or cyber attack is really not defined or the outcomes are not uh, really even for researchers, are not uh, easy to define how will we characterize an attack, what's to have a guarantee that an insurance will help me to protect what I value as risk data. So how do you see that? If you were to talk with a farmer who uh, doesn't know about insurance, which policy insurance to pick, how would you suggest to think about or just start also conversations about this safety by design versus Uh, Companies trying to put some insurance policies for cybersecurity in agricultural, especially the precision applications. What do you think about that?
3: Yeah, no, I think uh, that's a really good question, you know, because George and I have a lot of discussions about this. Right. You know, Mm -hmm. uh, so we we were doing some scenario planning. Assume there is a cyber attack. Right. Then what? So one of the things that we are working on is, let's say, nitrogen applicator. So nitrogen is required for plants and farmers or producers apply nitrogen on the farm using these big sprayers. So let's assume that gets compromised or uh, hacked and then you're applying, you know, different rates instead of saying like 100 pounds per acre, you're, you're applying 500 pounds per acre, you know, so so then that's a problem right and you wouldn't know that you applied a wrong amount until the end of the season because when you go to harvesting the crop then you don't may you might not have a crop you know because you you applied the wrong wrong uh, dosage you know of uh, this fertilizer so we're trying to do that to figure out what's the dollar per acre loss or what is the profit loss maybe that's how we can get some awareness among farmers hey you know why you need a security insurance or these are some of the things that need to be thought about and adding to that if there is uh, in the future if there are no operators right uh, monitoring things it could be even more challenging if you have a fully driverless applicator doing this and then you don't even have uh, someone monitoring uh, if uh, something is going wrong. You know, today operators are there actually not—they're not controlling the machine. They are sitting in the cab observing for problems, literally, uh, which is very hard to do even with AI and everything. <laughs> you know, so they're in the in the cab. The sprayer, let's say, is drying by itself and it's applying chemicals, but at the same time, the all the operator is doing is monitoring for problems. You know, and when, when you remove the operator and it's fully driverless, we'll have uh, a lot more problems, you know. So, George.
4: So, the concept of cyber insurance, don't forget, it's actually very, very new. And it's actually interesting. We always say the legal, because see, my background's in digital forensics, and we always argue that the legal aspect always is years behind the technological aspect. But the way you asked the question got me thinking has the legal aspect in this case finally caught up with the technological aspect? Um, and it's just interesting to the fact of, is this, how, how is a farmer going to perceive cyber insurance in the aspect of any other form of insurance that they have? Are they going to view it as a great enough risk that they need cyber insurance? I mean, I was talking, it was, it was about a year ago, and someone said to me, they, they, I was approached and they said to me, Nebraska doesn't have a cybersecurity problem in it's agriculture. And at the same time, JBS had happened, similar where we had some problems here in Nebraska. Uh, Kansas had been impacted, the Dakotas had been impacted, Iowa had been impacted. And I'm looking around going, these are all our neighbors. And one farmer turned around and I was asked to comment, and they said, you know, this, it's not a con cybersecurity is not a concern for us. And that's because it hasn't happened. You only until you, your neighbor, possibly your brother or sister who's got a farm too, is impacted, you're not gonna realize. The benefits of cyber insurance. It's an education aspect. And then you're obviously going to get that the, the, the farmer as well, who's going to say, well, I don't need definitely don't need cyber insurance. This is just another, you know, cut into my yield year on year. So it's, it'll be interesting to see how the cyber insurance aspect will play out towards how they would, the farmer will think about security as well. There's also the other side of the coin playing the devil's advocate in that will insurance companies overdo it with cyber insurance. you know, will they have so many clauses, you know, acts of God if you want to put it that way in terms of when they eventually would pay out. Because if you think about the risks associated with cyber attacks and the risk possibly with hail, fire, tornado, those are, I would say, rarities controlled by the farmer. But what's going to happen if the farmer fails to update his antivirus for nine months and gets hit by a cyber attack, Surely the policy pays out, okay, but then how do you find out? So the farmer goes, well, I've got insurance, I've been hit by a cyber attack, time to pay out, but hey, hang on, you didn't update your antivirus, Oh, you didn't maintain your subscription here. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see how cyber insurance will play out in those cases, paying out for certain things, not paying out for other things, and then what effects can I, that going to have on people going forward, Let's talk specifically in the agriculture community, taking out cyber insurance,
1: So one motivation to ask this question was that there can be many models and there even cybersecurity might not provide the benefits because of the so many clauses where they cannot cover an accident. So because we are early enough, maybe are there other models apart from cyber insurance that could help you have reliable software that at the end is another way to protect also incidents like how is our ability to repair or be aware of uh, what are some security of software defects and how can they get repaired? So there was also a case where the dealership, this was dealership software for a tractor. And uh, it's very expensive uh, sometimes to get the tractor back to the dealership company and get all the time that the farmer might lost because of the repair uh, done by the dealership, they actually started to take an activism role. So they themselves figure out how to hack the tractor software and made the repairs. So in a way that's also, they are repairing their systems and they don't have to pay insurance. Well, this incident is at a local scale, right? Their data hasn't been exposed yet to internet or something. They might need a wider coverage by cybersecurity insurance. But what do you think about that approach? Some of them uh, might find more that more hands-on approach, and that has more control over their own code or, or their own software.
4: I mean, it's, it's it's an interesting discussion. But think back, tie this back to what we know about Apple devices. I think they're the best example. You know, you can't open up your Apple Apple device itself. You avoid the warranty. You know, the, the specific screws, etc., that you break, and and things like that. It's an interesting discussion because we know farmers and agriculture producers, they like to repair their own things, save time, save money. It's the way things are done. In terms of the complexity now of the systems, is that a good idea? Before it was purely mechanical, combustion engines, we'll just use the word, it was cool. Now we've got CAN buses, we've got electronic control units, we've got all sorts of things. I'm not saying no one can figure it out, but what's stopping someone by mistake, as we say, downloading a piece of software off the back of a truck, putting it into a tractor, and then all of a sudden that tractor can be remote controlled without you realizing it? So going back to the open source argument, there's there's nothing stopping... I mean, I I, I like to use the analogy, if it looks like Android, if it smells like Android, and it tastes like Android, it might not be Android. And that's true, because, you know, you can write whatever version of Android you want, put it on the internet, call it Android, it's open source, can be downloaded, and I can control your phone and not store any of your data on your phone. Okay, that's the same analogy. You know, someone could download a piece of software for their tractor to, to make it do something, and they don't realize they've just downloaded some code that's malicious... And it's going to effectively prevent that tractor from working for the next 45 days during harvest or planting. Or, you know, the data that it's being fed back to the driver in the, in the cabin saying one thing and the other thing is the reality it's not happening on the ground in terms of, you know, modifications to algorithms, et cetera. So there's that argument too. And then you think about it, who's paying out in that case from the insurance perspective? But yeah, I know you moved on and said to me what other things can be done. But it it is it is uh again the one that we don't have a definite answer for yet.
3: I think uh, keeping the manufacturer in the loop is going to be important. And how do we do that? Maybe they need they can have more trained outlets. You know, so instead of uh, one Apple store, can we have you know a certification for people so that. They're authorized to actually repair, you know, so that could be another format, you know, train third parties so that, you know, uh, the manufacturer doesn't have to do everything.
1: Yeah, those uh, look also uh, promising strategies for alternatives to cyber insurance. And also, so in the cybersecurity analysis, it's really hard sometimes to get to know when you have been breached or when have you been attacked if you don't have a lock system in place or a incident they call incident response systems where mm-hmm. you also have preparatory preparation pre- yes <laughs>
4: preparatory
1: <laughs> yes uh, so they have a code for example from big companies let's say company a they build these systems where you actually get to code what you want to log for and without that, you don't have even a trace of what's happening in your system, like who breached you or who is download, downloading some specific extension of files that you might associate with the attack. So I'm thinking like uh, if it's already hard, like you have to have some software to do that. But how will that work to be able to detect? Uh, sometimes we already are there there is these topics going on in in agriculture that, a cyber attack, we need to detect when we are breached or when someone is accessing our information. But really, it's not a straightforward process. So even you will have to have someone else, software. A big company develops some log system so that you can build or code for those detectors and actually detect something. But that's a chain of chains in the software. You depend on someone else. And in a way, that's like a monopoly, maybe, model where... For example, if this detection uh, system from this big company fails, you will also fail. And that is one model. The cybersecurity insurance is another model where you might not fix your code, but you can get money compensation and other type of legal compensation to repair. So, and then the if the, for example, persons that are developing software can also have that training for the users or... Do some sort of advanced testing, also staging into the product itself, so that it could also be a model. Uh, so, uh, with this, I wonder your thoughts. What is your, how do you see software detecting intrusions or data leaks or some sort of cyber threats in agriculture?
4: Look, right, so let's rewind slightly. So right now, the attacks we're seeing in agriculture are ransomware attacks. Ransomware attacks are basically someone getting emailed the URL, an email, a link or something, a piece of malware comes on, it's encrypting, and that's how the attacks Simple, easy. That is due to a lack of cybersecurity awareness and hygiene. Okay. The attacks you're talking about are... Hopefully, not going to happen in terms of, you know, that's the great idea, but they will happen, unfortunately, in that we are, when we eventually see robots on the ground working, you know, pieces of ma- machinery being manufactured and actually coming out into the fields, that is going to involve one of two models, like you say. One, if it's a closed source solution, it's going to involve the manufacturer identifying algorithms for effectively. Detecting anomalies and malicious activities, or if it's an open source solution, is somehow the farmer being notified that this is the case. Now, when it comes to instant response, that is a good point. Think about a farmer way out west in Nebraska, away from the FBI, the federal agencies, any form of help. Hackers can be in and out of a system in minutes. They always have, and they always will be. By the time someone gets out of a system and someone gets that help, they've gone. They can erase, they can vanish effectively. So that is going to raise an interesting point. Who is going to be the first response in an instant response scenario involving tomorrow's agriculture equipment? We'll call it tomorrow because today we don't kind of have that capability. So tomorrow's agriculture equipment, who is handling the instant response? And the way I like to do it is, is the farmer a chief information security officer, an information security manager, the CEO... The security analyst, the incident handler, all the same person with one hat on. And that is the scary thought because this is, again, I'll reiterate, a critical infrastructure of the United States. And is today's farming operations going forward inadequate to meet tomorrow's demands? Does a farmer need to have a chief information security officer? Do they need to have security incident handlers, a security analyst, a pen tester on hand? Do they need to maybe hire people like me and you to help them buy their equipment properly because we think of the things that they're not thinking of from a security perspective? Because like Sancho said, right now I don't think it's their concern. They're just caring about yields and money. You know, We've got to kind of help them and say, right, um, have you thought about the detection of an incident if this happens? They're not going to be thinking about it. So it's down to people like me and you to kind of educate them and go, hey, this is something you've got to think
3: of. Yeah. So the only thing I was thinking is, you know, ag equipment can work offline, right? (laughs) So. Yeah. (laughs) Just cannot. (laughs) So, especially in this uh, internet world. So I think, you know, that's one advantage is there's a lot of push towards um, edge computing where this equipment is not actually connected to the internet only on a need basis, it can be connected. Uh, So However, I think in the future where we have a situation where everything is connected, you know, all of this become very important and the intrusion detection becomes very, very important. Almost, you know, I tell George, like maybe we need uh, like a black box, you know? (laughs) Black box is after the fact, right, for planes, but you know, before the fact, is there any uh, intrusion detection mechanisms that can be included on ag equipment? But again, uh, one advantage of ag equipment is they can work offline too, so.
1: Yeah, that's also a trade-off because if farmers lost the confidence that this will be too much of a burden, Why would they anyways think about it's worth to buy this technology if you have to buy the technology, buy the software and buy the insurance as well? But maybe there is might be a possibility to incorporate within the software process another strong testing or education to farmers as well, because... Many things are possible when you connect software and start depending on chains of other.
3: Yeah, many attack surfaces. Right. Yeah, totally. Like, George, uh, we have we have this discussion all the time. Uh, Because of the variety of uh, people involved, because of uh, so many vendors. So, like, if you think about a tractor, there's a wireless module, which is made not by the tractor manufacturer, right? It's made by someone else. Then there is an app. It's another third party. So, there are so many third parties, (laughs) you know, systems that are all working together, Uh, So that means you have so many attack surfaces, you know?
1: Yes, indeed. And there is another perhaps coming. We have gathered some thoughts of people working in cybersecurity. That is, how about breakthroughs in the transportation of agricultural products? Because that could also be a profitable impact for hackers, right? If I know that some product is being massively transported somewhere, I could rather hack that transportation link Yeah, that is also going to impact agriculture. And uh, perhaps the last question, one really hard thing in vulnerability detection for the other systems in computer science, for instance, is how hard is to have disclosed information that can be mined after an attack and build detectors. So it's really hard for a company to disclose Uh, when something happened, when has it been repaired because of sensible reasons that are understandable, but also it's hard to have a data set where people that are trying to build detectors will have coherent data to analyze, okay, we want to characterize something. Can we use something that has happened in the past as useful information right now? But it's really hard to have that compilation of data. But if we know already that problem has happened, is there something you can see happening different in agriculture with respect to vulnerability data?
4: So something we do terribly in cybersecurity is sharing information about what's happened to us. This was actually what my PhD was on. How do we get the best quality data for security incident learning in an organization? And to give you an analogy, think about a plane from a airline company here in the United States is coming into land in New York and they have a problem. Let's say it's a Boeing. And, you know, they, t- they, they say we had a problem and this plane sold all over. What happens is they file a report and that information is shared and disseminated with every airline around the world. Hey, whoever's got this plane, there's a problem with the landing gear. This happens and life gets better. We share information. Think about it in terms now of security leave the ag part to the side, but think about how many different people run possibly Microsoft, Apple, Cisco, IBM. How many companies are around the world? Millions. Okay, let's take one company. If there's a vulnerability with one of them, how many different devices are affected? Let's say our company, so me and you, we detect a problem with our effectively a system that we know hundreds and millions of people are running. We don't go and share that information. And that's because we don't want people to know publicly what vulnerabilities we have. We don't want people to know effectively we're weak. We don't want our shareholders to have a problem. Our stock price can go down. Our reputation can go down. And that's that's kind of why, as researchers, sometimes we're left scratching our heads and trying to detect all the possible vectors without anyone sharing information because people don't like sharing all the information. If they did, we would have more secure a more secure world, but a lot of people keep that information in-house unless there's a, a regulatory reason, a, a legal reason, and that's quite scary, like I said, tied back to, to airline industry. If they never reported things, you know how, how would one airline know what this can happen if they don't report it? Uh, maybe what we are missing is the gatekeeper model, which they do have in aviation. If someone was to report all these vulnerabilities anonymously and a bulletin goes out, so you would never know where the vulnerabilities come from, that could be, you know, one model we can have in cybersecurity, the gatekeeper model. And, it, and if you think about it, every safety industry that has a cybersecurity element has this gatekeeping incident reporting model in place. And we hope when ag comes to, you know, life in terms of it needing it, hopefully they follow a similar model and they don't go down the model of, of you know, hardcore cybersecurity where everything's closed and not reported.
1: Yeah, that's interesting point. I wonder if the gatekeeper model uses some sort of anonymization because in the artificial learning, there is a particular area where they study how to anonymize data. So there are powerful techniques out there for doing so.
4: So so you can look at it two different ways. So the gatekeeper model would be I report it and then you disseminate. you the gatekeeper, I report it to you. Only you know who I am and what I've come across. So, you, so you've taken out the fact that I reported it to you and you disseminate the information to everyone else that is running the same product. So no one would know I'm affected. Okay. Um, the the problem I have with anonymization of security data is who's in charge of the anonymization. Because if it's left to the person doing the reporting, people and companies don't want to report. So they'll make things more obscure than what they really should be. So we're kind of defeating the purpose. You know, how how did they get in the attack vectors and things like that? They'll leave that out. So if we leave it to the people that are supposed to be doing the sharing, they're not going to share it very well. So again, maybe do you need a gatekeeper to do that for them? So there is problems with both approaches.
1: And would you think that a, ge- a gatekeeper could be a federal administration um, or government or industry or not a, not any?
4: It's difficult to know. I mean, history tells us. History. I mean, we've we've seen aviation recently, how a federal model there has had problems. We've seen train crashes in Europe where they've had, again, government level uh, across the European Union problems. So industry, again, we've seen problems with that. So there is I don't think there's a model which is perfect. And I think that's the right answer in terms of every model's got its problems and, and we've got to figure out, for each and every domain, which is the one that fits better and works with the approach, and take it from there.
3: Yeah. I think a potential solution could be involving ag cooperatives. Literally, these are producers coming together, investing in farming operations. Uh, So it could be that, you know, a network of producers, you know, that could be reporting these. And um, because these are the people who are working day in and day out with equipment and technology, so they know what they are, uh, what is normal <laughs> uh, operation of equipment, what is abnormal operation, you know, so maybe they can report, so just a thought. Just putting my researcher hat on, I think this is a great question. You know, George, one of the things I was thinking is, you know, unlike other domains, agriculture equipment especially, we know what is a normal operation. You give like a certain path, uh, they go, the same path again and again, do the operations. We know anytime there is a deviation from normal behavior, we can detect within seconds. Uh, is that a cyber attack? Is there a software malfunction? Uh, I, I'm just going uh, on a research route here, George. <laughs> I mean, it's, it is it is
4: interesting. I mean, I, I will never forget when my wife was, was in delivery and the nurse was watching the monitors for eight other women who were in labor. She was watching blood pressures and all things. And I said to her, what would happen? There was one nurse. And I said, to her, what would happen if I attack this monitor right now, I said to her, and cause the fake blood pressure spike? She says to me, I would be running in that direction and your wife would be staying in this room. And I said, so what if I caused another one? How do you know these are real? You know, and that's the same analogy, Santosh, is, is, is how do we know that it's going to be real? How do you know it's a real attack? Because if we send out a piece of autonomous equipment and we think that it's going west, and in fact, I'm reporting back to the farmer, it's going west, the piece of equipment. In the meantime, it's going east towards the road and into and, and oncoming traffic. The farmer is going to be none the wiser. Um, so there's got to be um, levels of trust, levels of assurance. Um, and that's, again, like I've driven with the medical side of life, the same, same thing. But sometimes when it comes to digital systems and information systems, we've got to have that level of trust that it is going to do what we're expecting it to do. But as we can see, sometimes we can cause a lot of mischief intentionally or unintentionally. Yeah.
1: Well, we certainly have learned many insights from our discussion and just for a closing, we were wondering if we can have any of you sharing a cyber awareness fact that you have find useful to incorporate in your day-to-day lifestyle.
4: Your passwords. Be very careful with your passwords, change them frequently, passwords people underestimate how vulnerable they are if your netflix account for example gets hacked and you use the same password to access university resources or your amazon account or your online banking all it takes is someone to get an email address off you the same email address you use for your services and they can access all your service accounts and services without even you realizing so i think one thing people underestimate in general is choosing strong and healthy passwords as opposed to weak and, and, and repetitive
3: passwords. I started using dual authentication for everything, maybe almost 80% of my accounts.
1: Is there any password manager that you recommend to use that you have find useful?
4: Not in, not in particular anything that jumps out and say, hey, this one's perfect, so they're all the same. <laughs> <laughs>
2: So I'll wrap up with one more question before we kind of uh, head into Gus's. And so this is obviously just a very, you know, complicated topic with a lot of kind of intersecting concerns and things going on. But overall, is there a single takeaway, you know, from all of this that you could leave our listeners with perhaps somebody who's even relatively new to this topic? Any final thoughts?
4: So I think this is a relatively new area. It's quite interesting discussion we had today because you brought up a lot of things that I don't think either of us have had a chance to think about. It is that new. And in fact, if you look at the researchers that are working on this problem in the United States, we can we know we can count them on one hand. And there's two of us right here. And it's a problem that we hope the community will start realizing is a big problem. And the sense that it's a big problem because ag and food is a critical infrastructure of the United States. And I can't stress that enough. We keep comparing the other critical infrastructures of banking and nuclear and chemical and things like that. And then we've got... F- Ag, and we need to start treating the industry and the stakeholders in it as people who need to have the knowledge and the awareness that they need to become more secure. Um, I said they need to become more secure because we know right now there is a lot to be done from a human, from a technological, from a vendor, from a regulatory, from a legal. It's across the board. We're literally starting some areas of this kind of domain from scratch. So there's a lot that needs to be done, and I think we need to bring different people together to hopefully, hopefully create a more secure agriculture ecosystem.
3: Yeah, I think like everything George said, ag and food systems is becoming more and more autonomous and data-driven, and uh, security by design is important, not just for ag equipment, but for the entire ag uh, food supply chain.
2: All right, great. Thank you so much. With the topic of
0: ag cybersecurity, uh, cybersecurity obviously is a huge issue, huge research area nowadays. What makes ag particularly unique or challenging from a cybersecurity perspective?
3: There are many aspects to it. Um, So one of the big thing is the heterogeneity in the type of uh, ag systems. Uh, So we have IoT devices on equipment, we have connected systems, let's say in grain elevators, we have connected systems in animal production, right? And we have many types of data types, you know, images, videos, regular text, and, and we have uh, a variety of workforce involved, <laughs> you know? And then equipment manufacturers involved, hired labor involved. So I think uh, ag and food production systems. You know that you have people working in this sector who have different understanding of what cybersecurity means, or who have different understanding of what hardware and software means. So that's why I feel like it it, it is uh, it's a very complex framework, you know.
4: I think just to add, we've got a previously highly mechanical ecosystem that has seen an influx of technology being thrown into it. And we've now got folks who were traditionally never having to think of potential vulnerabilities and things like over-the-air updates that are currently now just not sure what to do, I think. Are scared to admit they're not sure what they need to do. So, I think that makes it a very interesting algorithm to figure out.
0: Refactored is part of the Menard Governance and Technology Programming Series hosted by the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center. The NGTC is a partnership led by the College of Law in collaboration with the Colleges of Engineering, Business, and Journalism and Mass Communications at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Tech Refactored is hosted and executive produced by Gus Hurwitz. James Fleege is our producer. Additional production assistance is provided by the NGTC staff. You can find supplemental information for this episode at the links provided in the show notes. To stay up to date on the latest happenings within the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center, visit our website at ngtc.unl.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at UNL underscore NGTC.